0: And Father, now as we come to your word, we remember, Lord, that your word is inerrant, that it is inspired, and that it is sufficient for everything that we need to know about salvation, about you, and about us. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word today to grow us in Christ's likeness, to grow our faith, to solidify and fortify our faith and to encourage us we pray for our children specifically lord we remember that our children are a gift from your hand and we thank you for them and we pray that seeds would be planted even today in the depths of their heart that many that all of them would come to salvation in due time that that the seeds that are planted would bear a rich harvest We pray for Maddie and Mitchell as they prepare uh, for the birth of their child. And we ask again, Lord, that you would uh, keep Maddie and her baby in health. Um, We pray that both Maddie and Mitchell would be prepared and uh, ready for the challenges that lay ahead as parents. We pray for your grace upon them during this time. And we pray, Lord, for all of us that your grace would be upon us as we now turn to your word. May it accomplish the purposes that you have ordained as we study it, as we believe it, and as we live our lives in accordance with it. All for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, Please turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 19 to 21 today. 19 to 21. This is the last Sunday of 2020. I think we can kind of rejoice in that with apprehension about what is to come. But uh, praise the Lord, we have uh, seen another year come and go. Um, Especially go. We're thankful for that. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21 today. Jesus always has an effect on people. Always. Jesus always has an effect on people. And as a pastor, that's something that I am aware of week in and week out. But never mind my title because really the the title pastor means nothing. Uh, It's this principle that Jesus always has an effect on people is something that not only every pastor, but every Christian should not uh, not only be able to attest to, but it's a principle that we would be wise to constantly be aware of. I'll never forget an encounter that my wife and I had with a woman at a garage sale. Several years ago now, we were visiting my uh, my family in Las Vegas, uh, but in order to kill some time and in order to get out and get some sunshine, they actually have sunshine all the time there, in uh, the summer heat, we decided to go out and, and find some garage sales around the neighborhood. And at one garage sale that we found, a woman uh, had some casino memorabilia laid out, uh, from one of the casinos that once upon a time, I actually worked at, and so um, we started talking about it. Uh, you know I made note of it, and I learned that this woman was also in the casino industry. but uh, as she vibrantly i guess is the, is a good word to describe it, as she vibrantly started sharing stories with me, which is also what casino uh, table dealers uh, do, she started just unleashing a barrage of profanities, uh, which is also very common among table games dealers. Uh, That's what they do. But I didn't flinch. Uh, You know, I I could have in my, you know, I I wanted to flinch, but I'd heard people, you know, as a table games dealer once upon a time myself, I'd heard people use that kind of language before. Uh, You kind of can't avoid it in that industry. But she didn't seem to notice that when I was conversing with her, I wasn't using the same language in return. It wasn't until about five or ten minutes into this conversation that she finally asked me, so what are you doing these days? And I told her, well, I'm a Christian, and I've actually uh, become a pastor. And you should have seen the look of terror in her eyes. Uh, You should have seen the, the look of absolute dismay and terror. Uh, when I started talking about how Jesus had changed my life, she was, just, she was horrified. And she, she didn't use another curse word with me, but that was really the end of the conversation. The, the, the door to that conversation was slammed in my face. Jesus always has an effect on people. And often that effect is a negative one, a heart-hardening effect. But not, not always. Uh, there was another garage sale, a, lo- a local one here. Um, I remember finding a, a collection of Christian books, good Christian books at a garage sale. And when I asked the man who was having the garage sale about them, he noted that uh, these books had belonged to his now deceased wife. Uh, and he talked about how into Jesus she was. And so I shared the gospel with him. And, and he said, you know, I, I really do need to start going to church and so I added, uh, by the way, I'm a pastor, uh, and, and I invited him to come to our church. But he listened to me as I talked about Jesus. He listened to me with an expression that seemed uh, to be very intent on, on the details. Very, uh, he was very interested, very, very curious, and he thanked me for talking to him as I left. Now, it's been said that the same sun that melts wax also hardens clay. And that's true. What the Son doesn't do is nothing at all. And likewise, Jesus always has an effect on people. One thing he doesn't do is nothing. The same gospel that softens one heart will harden another. The same gospel that results in one man's conversion and transformation will result in another man's rage. What makes the difference between those two effects? Well, if it's it's something about us that makes the difference, then we have something to boast about in ourselves. We could say, well, we're we're smart enough. We could say, well, we're we're open-minded enough. We could say, well, we're we're patient enough. And and these things are all very self-exalting. They're things that are self-glorifying, but the Bible makes it clear that we have nothing to boast in except Christ. So what makes the difference between those two things? Well, the 10th chapter of John's gospel actually gives us several hints. We've seen Jesus refer to himself as the good shepherd, and as such, Jesus has told us in this chapter about many things that he does. He protects his sheep. He provides for his sheep. He loves his sheep. And of course, we saw last week, he lays down his life for his sheep. That's the ultimate demonstration of his love for the sheep. But he also calls his sheep. He calls them by name, specifically, individually. And he started this whole section, this whole chapter in which he likens himself to a good shepherd by telling us back in verse 3 that he does that. That he calls his sheep sheep name and he goes on to tell us multiple times throughout this chapter so far that his sheep hear his voice and not only do they hear his voice but they know his voice in verse 3 he says the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out verse 4 the sheep follow him because they know his voice verse 14 I know my own and they know me verse 16 I have other sheep which are not of this fold I must bring them also and they will hear my voice that's at least one factor that makes a difference in the effect that Jesus has on a person and that's a very significant factor now we saw last week that the way that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice the way that people that, uh, that belong to Jesus the elect hear his voice, is by the gospel being preached. Uh, There's a voice that transcends the voice of the preacher. It transcends my voice. It transcends any other preacher's voice. It's a voice that speaks to and calls out to the individual heart, and that is the voice of Christ. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 10 verse 14. makes it very clear. When people hear the gospel preached, The sheep, among those who are hearing, the sheep hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, calling out to them personally, individually. And for this reason, everyone who is faithful to evangelize... Whether that's just by, by regular evangelism with a friend or whether it's going on missions, whatever. Everyone who shares the gospel faithfully with those who do not yet believe are going to have a twofold experience with doing so. You will either see people hate what you have to say and not listen to what you have to say, those are people who hate truth, who hate God, who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Or you'll see others for whom the gospel message rings true. And you can almost see their hearts softening right before you. And we see these two things happen frequently throughout Jesus' ministry. We're told of the blessing and prophecy, for example, that a man named Simeon, who had been told by God that he would not die before seeing the Christ, spoke in regards to Jesus. We read this in Luke's Gospel testimony, Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them, that's referring to Joseph and Mary. And, jo- and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will even pierce your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Through this Christ and truly the thoughts of many hearts were revealed whenever Jesus spoke especially with the Pharisees and the thoughts of many today are still being revealed whenever the gospel is preached So having told the Pharisees why he had come, he gave us two reasons in the passage that we looked at last week. Number one, to lay down his life as the good shepherd on behalf of the sheep. And number two, to unite his sheep who are scattered throughout the world and throughout the ages. So having told these Pharisees why he had come, we see that the people are affected by his words now in very different ways. So the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is that the teachings and the deeds of Jesus are sufficient for a person to see Jesus as the good shepherd that he is. Let me say it again. The teachings and the deeds, the words and the works, the doctrines and the deeds of Jesus are sufficient for a person to see Jesus for the good shepherd that he is and to believe and follow him. So, having laid out these great two purposes for which he came, and having told us that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up, we now read about how his audience responds. So let's look at this this whole next three verses, 19 to 21. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So the world can, if you want to boil it down to the bare essentials, the world can be broken down into just two groups of people. Those who hate God and thus hate the gospel with an irrational hatred. And those who love God and seek his truth. And we see these two groups represented extremely, extremely clearly, vividly in the text at hand. And, and we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen divisions arise because of Jesus before. John says a division occurred again. In other words, we should be thinking, okay, this is something that has happened At least one other time, actually it's happened two other times in John's gospel that he tells us about uh, when Jesus gave the great gospel invitation saying in in, uh, chapter 7 verses 37 and 38, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then in verses 40 and 43, we read this. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And John concludes this passage by writing, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. division because of Jesus Then, then in chapter 9 verse 16 John wrote this he said therefore some of the Pharisees were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath but others were saying how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs and there was a division among them now maybe you don't think of Jesus as being a divisive figure usually in Christian circles we look at division as being A very bad thing that we always want to avoid. But the Lord Jesus always has an effect on people, one way or another. Jesus and his gospel always have a dividing effect. And and that's implied throughout this chapter, by the way, isn't it? Think about it. Did we not see clearly from the beginning the implication of this, after all? The fact that the shepherd calls his sheep by name, as we saw in verse 3 of chapter 10, means that those sheep who do belong to the shepherd are divided from those who don't. They're called out from among other sheep that don't belong to the shepherd. The good shepherd's sheep are thus divided from the sheep that belong to other flocks and folds. But we should also see that this is what God has done with his people from the beginning, throughout the ages, that he has set them apart. He has divided them from the nations, separating them from the world. He has called his people throughout the ages to be holy as he is holy. Now what does that even mean? to be holy. It doesn't just mean to be good. It doesn't just mean to be righteous, although that is the secondary meaning of it. The question is, what is the primary meaning of it? And the primary meaning of holiness, of being holy, is to be separate. It's to be divided. It's to be set apart by God for God. The fourth commandment, for example, is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, what makes the Sabbath day holy? It's not just that we're supposed to act better on one day of the week. No, it's set apart. The Sabbath is set apart. The fact that it isn't to be treated like every other day of the week is what makes it holy. Exodus 20, God's giving the the 10 commandments and this is what he says when he gives the fourth commandment. He says, "Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you." In other words, for 6 days of the week you can you can do all these things. You can work, you can play, you can go out and have fun, you can, you can do whatever you want, but the Sabbath is supposed to be different. The Sabbath is holy. The Sabbath is separate. The Sabbath is sacred. It's to be divided from those other six days of the week. And so when God called his people to be holy, as he is holy, it meant to be, first and foremost, separated from the world in the world but not of the world there's a necessary division that must take place between God's people and the world which is exactly why James said do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God so why does that make a person an enemy of God It's because we're called, as God's people, to be holy, to be divided, to be set apart from the world for God's purposes and for God's glory. And to be friends with the world is to be unholy, or it's to defile what is holy. The Lord Jesus always has one effect or another on people. He divides people people. Jesus and his glorious gospel always have and always will have a dividing effect. And it does seem strange to consider this dividing effect that Jesus, uh, given that Jesus is the one who came to preach and to establish peace between God and man. We see divisiveness as always a bad thing always necessarily a bad thing and we always see peace as being a good thing but I think one of the things that scripture confronts us with is the fact that sometimes division is a bad thing but sometimes it's a good thing sometimes it's even a necessary thing and sometimes peace is a good thing but sometimes peace is a bad thing if you've got peace with your flesh nature if you're at peace with sin, you're at war with God. Likewise, if you're at peace with God, you're at war with sin. That's the way it works. Yes, Jesus came to establish peace between God and man, but he also came to divide humanity. And he knew that from the outset. He was always, always aware of that. Remember his words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where he said this. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What's he talking about there? He's saying he always has a dividing effect on people. And yet it's not his fault when division arises. It's the fault of those who reject him. It's the fault of those who will not repent and believe in him. When division occurs in a setting like this, it happens because truth divides. As long as everybody's believing a lie, there's unity, but it's not a good unity. But what happens when some of those people who believed the lies start to have the truth revealed to them? Division and dissension happens, and that's a good thing. This is a wonderful follow-up to what we talked about last week, by the way, in our previous lesson. We talked about the need for missions and the need for evangelism and how those are the context in which we share the gospel, which is how somebody initially hears the voice of the shepherd calling their name. But if we're faithful to do that, as we should, we should expect to witness and to encounter and to even cause strife and division. Jesus did. And human nature has not changed since Jesus' time. No, man's basic nature is exactly the same. So we can expect to see what Jesus saw when we are faithful to share the gospel. J.C. Ryle says this. He notes, quote, So long as the heart of man is without grace, so long we must expect to see it dislike the gospel of Christ. Just as oil and water, acids and alkalis cannot combine so in the same way, unconverted people cannot really like the people of God. End quote. You see, the carnal mind, the, the flesh, the unconverted, unregenerate person, cannot just be neutral toward the things of God. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So what hope, then, does the carnal person have? What hope does the unregenerate have? Grace. Grace, and, and grace alone. The grace that's received through faith alone in Christ alone. So how does a person have faith? Faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So let us never, therefore, grow discouraged in our efforts to share the gospel. Let us never fear to endure the scorn, and the mocking, and the the ridicule of those who will not believe. Receiving that kind of treatment, actually, if you think about it, should be expected. Jesus said we should expect it. Because if they like us, that's a bad sign. We should expect to receive the same kind of treatment that he received. I mean, should we expect better treatment than Jesus received? No, of course not. Because human nature is the same today as it was when Jesus walked the face of the earth in his earthly ministry. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see what we see in our text today. We shouldn't be surprised that a division among the Jews happens here in John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21. In fact, everything that we see happening in these three verses is an illustration of everything that Jesus has said up to this point in the chapter. What exactly was it that sparked the division? Well, we can't be sure because Jesus has said a lot of things here. He's had a little bit of a monologue here. But the last thing that Jesus said in verses 17 and 18 was, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So that's what Jesus just finished saying. So it seems most natural to assume that that's what caused the division. That's, that's very possible. Uh, his claim to have a power that the Pharisees didn't have was surely something they took offense at. Uh, his claim to have an authority that the Pharisees didn't have was almost certainly something that they would be offended by. Uh, they may have had the power and the authority to lay down their lives willingly, right? Uh, just like anybody else in human history we we can we can willfully die, sure, but they, just like everybody else, had neither the power nor the authority to take their own lives back up again. So this seems very likely to be what caused the offense and what caused the division. But it's also possible that they were offended, that Jesus would not only refer to himself as the good shepherd, definite article, the good shepherd, not a good shepherd, but the good shepherd, uh, but would claim to be altogether different from them by using the definite article, and would uh, refer to these Pharisees as hired hands, or or hirelings, as thieves and as robbers. Maybe they understood uh, that they shouldn't be clapping because he was talking about them. Maybe they understood that Jesus was claiming to be the shepherd whom God had promised to send in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, God exposes the problem and the prominence and the proliferation of the false shepherds in Israel and God promises in verses 22 and 23 of Ezekiel 34, he says, quote, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And he repeats that promise in chapter 37, verse 24. He says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will, have, they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Now, of course, this was a reference. Uh, this reference to David was a reference to the lineage of David, the, the heritage that David would pass on through which the Messiah would come. See, God had made a covenant promise with David, referred to as the Davidic covenant, in Second Samuel chapter 7, where God said to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant. Who's he talking about? Jesus. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's possible that the idea, and as far as these Pharisees are thinking, that the idea that this rabbi Jesus, who was so hated by the Pharisees and who was claiming to be the promised shepherd from Ezekiel, all of these things were just taken as offensive to them. There are so many things that he has said that could have been what sparked uh, the offense and the division. Or maybe it was just all of it. And not just one thing in particular that Jesus said, but whatever the case, this is what we read in verse 20 here in John chapter 10. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Now, that is a classic ad hominem argument, which means it's an irrational argument. It's an argument that doesn't really address... The evidence at all. It's not even trying to refute the evidence. An ad hominem argument isn't a valid argument. It's not really not even an argument at all. What an ad hominem argument does is ignore the evidence. It ignores uh, the the argument that a person has presented, and it ignores everything that has to do with the subject, and instead it attacks the person instead of the position. Kind of like you know, when I was a kid, uh, if, if somebody said something to correct us, we'd say something like, oh yeah, well, you're ugly and your mom addresses you funny. Classic ad hominem argument. Has nothing to do with what the person says. It's just attacking the person, right? It's an irrational thing to do. An irrational way to respond to a truth claim. But this is nevertheless what the Pharisees do. This is, this is an argument that they would commonly present to discredit Jesus. They'd claim that he was possessed by a demon. They'd accuse him of working on behalf of Beelzebub. Interestingly enough, on on one of those occasions when they accused him of of working on behalf of Beelzebub, uh, Jesus shot back that there's one place where there's no division, and that is in hell among the demons. They all stand in one accord against God's kingdom. They are undivided. They are Entirely united against the things of God. And thus, Jesus reasoned, it is impossible that he could be possessed by a demon while at the same time working to build God's kingdom. It's been said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And that's basically what the many, notice that that's what it says it's the many here in verse 20, are doing. They're accusing him of either being a liar or a lunatic, or or both. They say, why do you listen to him? He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. Why would you be listening to him? And that reveals something very interesting to us, doesn't it? It reveals that there were some among them who were listening to Jesus. They were considering, they were paying attention to everything that Jesus was saying. And we hear people, by the way, make all these same basic irrational arguments today as well, whereby they either claim that Jesus was a liar or a lunatic. They'll say things like, you know, maybe Jesus thought that he was God, but haven't there been countless people throughout history who claimed to be God uh, the second part of that argument is actually true. There have been a lot of people who have claimed to be God. Uh, when I was in college, I did an internship at a mental hospital, and there were plenty of people in there who would have claimed to have been God. The question is, what sets them apart from Jesus? Well, look at what the other group says. This shows us what sets Jesus apart from every other person in history, from everybody else in history who's claimed to be God. Verse 21 says, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So there are two things here that these people are saying correctly that set Jesus apart from everyone else in the world and everyone who has ever claimed to be God. Those two things that set him apart are number one, his teachings, his doctrine, and number two, his actions, his deeds, his teachings and his acts, his words and his works. These are people who realize that Jesus really did heal a blind man back in chapter nine. And they can't explain it. They've seen the evidence They may have very well known who that guy was. After all, he was outside the temple for years, for his entire life, where he was taking handouts and relying on the generosity of people who were coming into and going out of the temple. Wouldn't they have known that this man was blind from birth? There's a good chance. And so they're confronted with the reality that they simply cannot explain in naturalistic categories. And his teachings, the question wasn't really whether or not they were offensive for this group of people. The question was whether or not they were true, whether or not they had substance, whether or not they were valid. Perhaps this second group of people who are listening to Jesus can see how Jesus' teachings aligned with everything taught and foretold in the Old Testament. So, So it's interesting to see here that these people who are being very reasonable, unlike the majority, the many, they're actually the minority. Those who are being reasonable, those who are using reason and logic and just being rational, they are certainly a minority here. Verse 20 tells us that many were saying that Jesus had a demon, that many were saying that Jesus was insane. Verse 21 doesn't say that many were convinced by Jesus' doctrine and deeds that he didn't have a demon and what, you know, that he wasn't just crazy. It says others. Others. The, the implication seems to be there that they were a vast minority. Those who think reasonably and rationally about Jesus are always, always in the minority. I can't tell you how many times I've seen an atheist come this close, and it's like, you're right there. You, you've, you've said all the things, you, you, you're, you're right on your way, but they won't cross that threshold. Even though it flows from everything that they've been arguing, they won't think rationally about him at the point of belief. They'll they'll think rationally up until that point, but then they'll turn away. Why? Because they hate the light. And they hate the light because they love darkness. Because they love sin. Those who think reasonably and those who think rationally about Jesus are always in the minority. But, anytime you have God on your side, it doesn't matter how many people stand against you, you are in the uh, the majority. You are in the majority because you've got the one truth that matters and the one thing that matters is the truth. It doesn't matter if the majority believe a lie. As Christians, friends, we should never be surprised when the world thinks we're nuts, when the world just thinks we're crazy, and they they often do. That's a belief about us that actually seems to be um, becoming more and more popular as our culture gets darker and darker. They think about us. they, they, They look at us and what we believe and the way we adhere to the teachings of Scripture, and they think, this is not progressive. This is not modern. They think we follow a bunch of teachings that are just outdated. They think we, we we adhere to a book that's full of fairy tales and superstition. Again, they're not thinking rationally. But humanity, by nature, refuses to think rationally about God. By nature, what do we do with the truth? According to Romans chapter one, what does man? in his fallen nature, do with truth. He suppresses it in unrighteousness. Now let's say that you've got, you've got the truth about what would get rid of coronavirus. And somebody knows that you have that truth. You, you tell somebody. And so they think, okay, I need to suppress this. I need to pr- pr- uh, make sure that this does not get out. That's an unrighteous thing to do, isn't it? Suppressing truth is always an unrighteous thing to do. And that is what man, apart from God's grace, that's what fallen man on his own does with the truth about God. He does something not only hostile toward God, but something that is very irrational and unrighteous. Anytime truth is suppressed, it is both irrational and it is intentional. But we should never be surprised if people accuse us of the same things that they accused Jesus of. Being crazy or being possessed by a demon. So who are these others in in verse 21? John doesn't tell us. And because John doesn't tell us explicitly, we can't be exactly certain but I think it would be reasonable to assume that Nicodemus was probably among them. After all, if you remember back in chapter 7... Nicodemus stood against the plans of the Pharisees to break the protocol that was outlined in Scripture uh, when the Pharisees um, wanted to have Jesus seized and arrested without a trial. And so Nicodemus stepped in and he said, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? In other words, what he was doing was defending Jesus. They couldn't seize Jesus if they wanted to. And Nicodemus didn't quite get that yet but he stepped in and defended Jesus before the Pharisees. So this group very likely included Nicodemus, who was among the Pharisees. It's also possible that it included a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Mark chapter 15, verse 43 tells us that Joseph was a prominent member of the council. He was a Pharisee. In John chapter 19, verse 38, tells us what Joseph did after the death of Christ. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. It seems very likely then that both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea would have been among the ones defending the minority position here and thinking rationally about what Jesus had been teaching in John chapter 10. His doctrine, his deeds, the others claimed, were evidence that he was actually not possessed by a demon. His doctrine and his deeds were proof that he was not just a lunatic. No, his words and his works led them to a different conclusion, a rational conclusion. And thus the question of the many why are you listening to him, why do you listen to him, is responded to thoroughly. This is why. Because of his words and because of his works, he was worthy of being listened to. He was worthy of being considered because his words and his works were unlike those of a liar and unlike those of somebody who is insane. The ramblings of a man who is a lunatic, who is insane, they usually don't make a whole lot of sense. But Jesus made sense. And his teachings were always pure. His teachings were always true. His teachings always aligned perfectly with the Scriptures. Always. Somebody who's insane doesn't consistently speak with clarity. In fact, one of the first ways to tell when somebody is mentally slipping or, or losing their mind it's, is revealed by what they say. They, they can't make sense of reality. They don't put words together that make any kind of sense, at least on occasion. But Jesus never, ever spoke in such a way. No, he spoke with clarity. He, he was logical. He was reasonable. He was consistent with the scriptures. And even if a crazy person does claim to be God incarnate, they can't do anything to substantiate that claim. They can't do anything to provide evidence of their claim to be God incarnate. They can't do something like giving sight to a blind man who's been blind from birth. But Jesus did. And they knew it. And they also knew that that was something that the Messiah would do when he came, Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 says of the work of the Messiah when he would come, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Now, think about it for a second. If just anybody in the world could do these things, if just anybody could open the eyes of the blind or unstop the ears of the deaf, why would it be something that the Messiah would do? Why would that be a specific sign of the Messiah? Why would it be foretold if it was just such a common thing? It wasn't. And so, this second group of people are just thinking rationally about it. They're thinking coherently about what they have personally witnessed a man who has been blind from birth, having his eyes opened. And they're doing so. They're thinking rationally, they're thinking coherently. By the grace of God. By the grace of God. Further, neither an insane person nor a person possessed by a demon would seek to glorify God. They wouldn't seek to do the will of God the way that Jesus did and did perfectly. They wouldn't seek to glorify God in all the things that they do. They wouldn't be preaching good news even if it costs them their life. The perfectly coherent, loving, peaceful, God-glorifying words of Jesus were actually the very opposite that we would expect, either from somebody who is possessed by a demon or somebody who has lost their mind and is just a lunatic. An insane person doesn't have the power to heal the blind. And if we know anything about the devil, we know that he's not in the business of opening blind eyes. In fact, he's in the business of blinding people and keeping them blind. So what we see here is that the vast majority here in verse, uh, verses 21 and 22, the, the vast majority have themselves rejected reason, and that the minority have themselves been given eyes to see and ears to hear. God's grace has reached down to these others, And has healed them. God's grace has filled them with life. They're being asked, Why do you listen to Him? which tells us what? That they could hear His voice. By God's grace, they've heard the voice of the Good Shepherd calling them specifically by name, and they're following Him by standing against the many, by refusing to yield to these baseless arguments that are presented by the majority of the Pharisees. And to this very day, friends, the teachings and the works, the, the words and the works of Jesus, his doctrine and his deeds are sufficient for a person to see Jesus for the good shepherd that he is and to respond by believing in him. It's not that there isn't any evidence it's that they have taken the evidence, they have taken the truth, and they have suppressed it in unrighteousness. The evidence is there. His doctrine and his deeds, his words and his works attest to exactly who he is. And of course, the ultimate work that proves that Jesus rightfully claimed to be God in the flesh and rightfully had the authority to claim to be the good shepherd who would lay his life down for the sheep is, of course, the resurrection if this small number of people who are standing against the pharisees if they thought jesus's deeds in healing the blind man proved that he was neither a liar nor a lunatic but that he was lord they hadn't seen nothing yet this same jesus would lay down his life for the sheep just as he foretold in verse 18, and he would prove that he had the authority to take his life back up again. The fact that he did take his life back up again, that he would be resurrected from the dead on the third day, proves that he also had the authority to lay his life down on behalf of the sheep. He would be the one who would take the wrath of God that was justly due to those sheep who had sinned and sinned and rebelled and rebelled against God all their lives but the shepherd would say i will bear their punishment your wrath can fall on me so that they can be spared and that's what happened and jesus had the authority to do it and the resurrection proves it only jesus only jesus had the authority to do that nobody else in all of human history could ever dare to make such a claim only jesus And of course, this was God's plan all along. He would send his only son through the line of David to love his sheep, to gather, to call and gather his sheep, to care for his sheep, to die for his sheep, and to raise again for the sheep. And of course, this is actually a covenant that took place between the persons of the Trinity, between the Father and the Son in eternity past. It's what you would call the eternal covenant, the covenant that we read about in Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 21, which says this. It says, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Those who belong to him, his sheep, those who hear his voice and who follow him in true faith, to this day proclaim Jesus as the one and only good shepherd who died on behalf of his sheep, and was raised for his sheep in order that we may be, according to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 and 21, in order that we may be equipped to do his will. In other words, causing good fruit, that which is pleasing to God, to be born in our lives. He's called us to be holy. He's called us to be separate. He's called us to be divided from the world. In it, but not of it. And of course, this is a division that will last for all of eternity as those who believe in him will enter into everlasting life, but those who reject him will receive everlasting condemnation. But here's the good news. There's still time. There's still time for many to receive life. Jesus always has an effect on people. The question is, what effect does he have on you? What effect does he have on you? Does he soften your heart? Or does he harden it? Listen, if you have never believed in Jesus, I urge you today to consider the brief nature of this life and to consider the futility of pursuing after anything more than the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not following Him, if you have not repented and believed in Him, consider His teachings. Consider His works. And consider that they will either soften your heart or they will harden it. And so if your heart is softened today and you have never believed in Him, see the urgency of the matter. See that life is short. Come to Him in faith and receive life everlasting. And if you've already done that, if you are following the Good Shepherd, if you have repented and believed in Him, Jesus calls you not only to follow Him, but to share His good news of salvation in Him, knowing that as you do, you may receive scorn from many, but his sheep are going to hear his voice. That's a promise. And the success of Jesus' mission is certain. He accomplished it, and he will fulfill it entirely. How? By his sheep going out and preaching the gospel. May he find us faithful to have done that. Let's pray. our most gracious God and Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the dividing effect that your word has on people. And we thank you that we have been set apart for your purposes and for the glory of Christ to be holy as you are holy. We pray, O God, that you would strengthen us and give us courage to live out this calling and to walk in a way that pleases and glorifies you, a way that is worthy of our calling in Christ. We pray for many to be saved through the preaching of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that if it be your will, that you would draw the many to Christ through our efforts to send missionaries and to evangelize with our friends and family members who walk in darkness. And we ask these things all in the name of and for the glory of Christ, the Good Shepherd, who laid his life down for the sheep and who took it back up again three days later. Amen.